This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, the Prime Minister in the Kimberley as the full scale of the flood damage starts to become apparent. Also, far-right protesters storm government buildings in Brazil, sparking memories of the attack on US Congress with one big difference. The horses bolted for Bolsonaro's supporters. Lula has already taken power, but it all speaks to this idea of not accepting the normal liberal democratic transfer of power. It speaks to far-right conspiracy theories. And some parents are struggling to get their children to stay in school. We'll hear how school refusal goes beyond stubbornness. She's just so distressed at the thought of going to school. She's running away at school, so she's frequently absconding, and I'm talking about a dozen times a day or more. Thanks for your company. The Prime Minister has arrived in the flood-ravaged Kimberley town of Fitzroy Crossing. Joined by WA Premier Mark McGowan, Anthony Albanese has been meeting locals to see the devastation and help work out how best to rebuild. The visit comes as floodwaters recede and residents face the immense and for some unfathomable task of cleaning up. Oliver Gordon reports. With all the roads into Fitzroy Crossing closed, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and WA Premier Mark McGowan had to fly in. The pair met local traditional owners like Boonaba elder Joe Ross, who says the meeting went well. The whole community and the leadership group's very happy. And did he outline any extra financial support uh, from the federal government, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese? He didn't elaborate at the time, but they were just about to announce a series of initial, he said they were initial, you know, there's um, got more negotiations and discussions on on uh, once they understand the extent of the um, needs in the community. But there's a series of uh, funding supports that are going to be announced today by the West Australian Government and the Federal Government. In Fitzroy Crossing, the scale of devastation is becoming clearer and it's affecting the morale of local residents like Patrick Davies. There's a thick layer of mud across the valley. Silt. Yeah, man, it's hard. Rapid assessment teams have continued their inspections of flood-damaged properties. Patrick Davies is respecting their instructions not to return home, but it's hard to see his possessions slowly deteriorate. The power line people have switched the power off of the power lines to the houses and they've, they've told me they've got to get electricians to go through and assess all the power points um, before anybody, you know, we've got to get a green light before we can go back there. And, like, I can't start cleaning. Um, and, you know, things like mould is going to, start getting a hold on everything that you may, may have saved. Um, I can see that already on my lounge. He says once the clean-up's finished, there are bigger questions to ponder about the future of Fitzroy Crossing. We're running out of space to build. At some point there needs to be some consideration of building the town in another area out of the flood, you know. The high ground here in, on, in Fitzroy Crossing is limited. A lot of it's tied up already. So, yeah, there's a lot of big questions, you know. But for now, the focus is very much on the immediate needs of people displaced by the floods. Some families from the many remote communities surrounding Fitzroy Crossing are still in the town's evacuation centre. Nindilangari Cultural Health Service Chief Executive Maureen Carter says the top priority now should be getting them home. But that'll, that will mean an injection of government investment to be able to get those houses repaired and um, up to standard before anyone can move in. That should be a priority, is trying to 
get people back into their homes. When it comes to the rebuild, she'd also like to see critical infrastructure strengthened. The Fitzroy Bridge, that's that's always been seen as, you know, would withstand the the flood levels, but, you know, this, this flood has damaged it. So they really need to look at making, uh, you know, these roads and bridges um, very strong, even higher probably. She says many of the people impacted will struggle to replace key items like fridges. There's a lot of people that have uh, lost property that that are on low income and will not be able to buy new um, furniture and white goods. That is where, you know, the assistance of donations would help. As the cleanup continues, Patrick Davies hopes people know it could be a long wet season ahead for the people of the Fitzroy Valley. The weather's the boss this time of the year. We get another low and we're back to square one. So the ground, the water table's already full. It won't take too much rain to top it up and get it flooding again. In a challenging time for the community, he's doing his best to focus on the positives. It's just the way it is. We haven't lost any lives, which is a good thing, and we're all safe and I'm always hopeful, mate, when I get up out of bed breathing. So am I. That's Fitzroy Crossing resident Patrick Davies ending Oliver Gordon's report. To Brazil, where there have been hundreds of arrests after supporters of ousted President Jair Bolsonaro broke into the country's Congress, Supreme Court and presidential offices, clashing with police and causing significant damage to property. The far-right former leader has denied playing any role in the violent invasion and has condemned the actions of those involved. The new administration is now moving to beef up security in the capital, with President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva vowing to punish those he called fanatic fascists behind the destruction. Gavin Coote reports. There were scenes of chaos in Brazil's capital and a sea of green and yellow as thousands of people broke through police barricades and stormed into Congress. Wearing the colours of the national flag, the supporters of ex-president Jair Bolsonaro broke through windows and doors of Congress, many others scaling the building's roof. One video showed a group of rioters pulling a policeman off his horse and beating him to the ground. The violence followed last week's inauguration of President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, also known as Lula, who labelled the protests barbarism and those involved fascists. The country's communications minister posted a video on social media showing the extent of the damage inside his office to artworks, computers and furniture and denouncing it as vandalism. Justice Minister Flavio Dino called the events a very serious attempt to destroy the democratic rule of law. We emphasise that this is not about the continuity of the electoral process. This is terrorism. It is a coup. And we are sure that the vast majority, if not all Brazilians, do not want this type of spectre of darkness to be implemented in Brazilian life. The invasion has been condemned by leaders around the world, with many expressing support for President Lula. Jair Bolsonaro has been in the US state of Florida since his defeat in the October election. The former populist leader has since been peddling false claims of electoral fraud, which his successor says have fuelled the attack on Congress. Bolsonaro has denied he was responsible, writing on social media that he condemns the violence.
Peaceful law demonstrations are part of democracy. However, pillaging and invasions of public buildings as occurred today, such as those practiced by the left in 2013 and 2017, are outside the law. Throughout my mandate, I have always been within the four pillars of the Constitution, respecting and defending the law, democracy, transparency and our sacred freedom. Many of Brasilia's streets have been sealed off and busloads of demonstrators were taken into custody. Dr Raul Sanchez Urabari is an expert on democracy and law in Latin America with La Trobe University and expects there'll be growing questions over how public security forces were so unprepared for the invaders who'd been planning demonstrations in the days before on social media. Certainly the role of the, uh, of the security forces in what happened will be subject to scrutiny and that's already being the, the conversation that we can see emerging. And certainly, depending on how things are played out, a call for, for Bolsonaro to be brought to the, to the, to the states. But it definitely depends on, on how things unfold. Dr. Sanchez Urabari says the new administration now faces the challenge of uniting Latin America's largest country and one of the world's biggest democracies. We're talking about a country that where unfortunately Politics has been polarised and divided for several years. Um, and at the beginning, it was a polarisation that took place mainly along ideological lines between the right and the left, but that in the past few years has focused on Bolsonaro as the leader, as a populist authoritarian leader, a leader that has no qualms as well in confronting democratic institutions and this is the context that we need to, to take to bear in mind when analysing what happened today. Will this be the real low point? I mean, this is a really difficult day for Brazil's history. Could it get worse before it gets better? I, I, from the bottom of my heart, I really hope this is the lowest point. I'll put it that way. And I'm saying this uh, on one hand as someone who is you know, a, a fellow Latin American concern about, about Brazilian democracy, but also as a Venezuelan who, who lost democracy on his own country. Uh, when I see events like this happening, of course, uh, it, it gives me goosebumps, to say the least. It's, it's really concerning. President Lula, who wasn't in Brasilia when the riots happened, arrived in the capital late in the day and vowed to investigate anyone who may have financed the protests. Gavin Coote, our reporter there. Well, watching the scenes in Brazil, it's impossible to avoid the comparisons with the January 6 attack on the US capital, especially as they come almost two years to the day since the deadly riots in Washington. Duncan McDonnell is a professor of politics at Griffith University. He's also co-authored a book on international populism and the radical right. He joined me earlier. The, the, the pictures we're seeing from Brasilia are very similar to the pictures we saw from Washington. However, I think the important difference here is the timing. If you remember, in the case of Trump's supporters, they were trying to stop Congress sanctioning his defeat. And remember, all the members of Congress were in there and they were running, they were running for their lives in some cases. In this instance, the, the horses bolted for Bolsonaro's supporters. Lula has already taken power. But look, certainly the modalities are very similar. It all speaks to this idea of not accepting the normal liberal democratic transfer of power. It speaks to far-right conspiracy theories about things like electronic voting machines, which we saw with Trump in the States, and we've seen again with Bolsonaro in Brazil. So there's a lot of similarities between the two events. Bolsonaro did put out a few tweets condemning the destruction and the invasion, but he also pointed to what he saw as similar incidents practiced by the left in 2013 
and 2017. Is that a fair comparison to make? It seems a little bit exaggerated to me. I mean, the, the most recent protests he's referring to there are when Brazil had a, had a general strike. In 2017, I'm sure there were scenes of violence in the streets. There were buses burning. There were people protesting and very, very angry. On the other hand, there weren't people going into the the key institutions of democracy and smashing them up. So I think we're talking about very different scales of protest there. And look, I understand why Bolsonaro is doing it. He needs to to play that game of saying, well, my people have done something bad, but but so did yours. And if you remember Trump, for example, in in the case of Charlottesville some years ago, played the exact same game of saying, well, you know, there's there's good people and bad people on both sides. But really, it's a a far-fetched comparison. So how far has right-wing populism come in the last two decades because we seem to be seeing an increasing number of these sorts of events and increasing power of of these far-right parties around the world. It's been the major political phenomenon in my view, of the 21st century. I mean, we're sitting here now in 2021, 22, 23, and we're looking at results like Marine Le Pen in France or Bolsonaro in Brazil, where characters who once upon a time got single-digit votes are are now the major challengers to the mainstream. So far-right populism is is on the rise, and it's on the rise globally. These far-right parties have this power because people are voting for them. So what is it within our democracy, as it stands now, that's driving people further out to the right to vote for these parties? I, I think we can say that there's a crisis of mainstream politics, both on the left and the the centre-right, which has been persisting for decades. People not only don't vote as much as they used to, they also join political parties much less than they used to. Um, Satisfaction with democracy is in decline because... A lot of people feel left behind. They feel that the elites, whether it's in Canberra or Brussels or Washington or Brasilia, the elites don't represent them, that they don't uphold their values, that they're not interested in their prosperity, that they're more interested in in big business, in international institutions like the UN or, or the European Union, and that they're, they, they've lost touch with, with, with the grassroots. Is there something that the left of politics is doing be it the relatively rapid shift to more progressive societal values, what opponents call wokeism, is that sort of thing fueling the the right? I think some of that certainly gives the right issues to to cling on to. For sure, there, there, there is a cultural clash there. But I think a lot of the challenges here are not so much even for, for the left, but it's also for the, for the mainstream right. I mean, centre-right parties across the world are being challenged by parties that are, are on the radical right. And you, you think about a country like France, for example, the centre-right is, is much weaker than Marine Le Pen's party. Um, well, look at what happened so in Congress over the past five or six days uh, with the Republicans tearing themselves apart. Absolutely. And, and you do have to question who's in the driving seat in the Republican Party when, uh, when McCarthy could be held hostage. How dangerous is all this? I think it's exceedingly dangerous when, in a couple of decades, we've moved from being scandalised about parties like this, even being coalition partners in Austria, to a situation where in some of the world's major democracies, whether it's the United States or India or Brazil or Italy, are governed by people who really don't seem so committed to the values of liberal democracy. They may well, they may well support 
elections and and some of the, the the facade of democracy, but they're not committed to the checks and balances of liberal democracy. That's very dangerous. Duncan MacDonald, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. And Duncan MacDonald is a professor of politics at Griffith University. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, plant lovers in Adelaide give their review of the stinky corpse flower, which perhaps thankfully goes years between blooms. I'd say it smelt like the bin by the end of the week if it had been really hot. A bit like rotting fish, uh, some compost maybe. Uh... Yeah, don't really know what a corpse smells like, so can't, can't comment on that. But it smells like a dead human. That's what the plant smells like. The national housing downturn has entered new territory, with average prices falling further than they ever have before. New data from CoreLogic shows an 8.4% drop since the peak in May last year although that comes after an historic surge in the value of homes during the pandemic. The downturn is most acute in high-end housing markets, while more affordable suburbs and homes have largely withstood the pressure of rising interest rates. John Daly reports. The extravagant homes in Sydney's northern beaches are at the coalface of the current housing downturn. Prices in Sydney have dropped 13% since the lofty peak in May last year, the biggest fall in the country. Real estate agent and auctioneer Ashley Miles says rising interest rates have affected so-called blue-chip suburbs. Some of my clients had uh, were approved, like, say, a $2.2 million loan. And with the interest rates going up, the bank has now told them they only can, can uh, borrow $2 million. So when they go bid on a house, they lowered their offer by 200000 So that's what's affecting the market. But you've still got quality buyers out there. You just don't have as many of Many of them, like before, you used to have six to ten people register for an auction, and now you're getting one, one, two, maybe three if you're lucky. Nationally, house values have seen the biggest decline on record, dropping 8.4% since the peak in May. CoreLogic's head of research, Tim Lawless, says it's also been the fastest housing downturn Australia has seen. The previous record drop was 8.38% uh, back between the middle of 2017 and the middle of 2019, and that took 20 months to reach a, a trough. So in many ways, uh, this is the, the largest and the most rapid downturn we've seen, at least at a macro level. Tim Lawless says so far the housing fall has been driven by a drop-off in demand, as opposed to a rush to sell before prices crash further. This is all about less demand, so fewer people active in the marketplace, which you can attribute to the fact that uh, borrowing capacity has been significantly eroded through uh, higher interest rates, but also the fact that consumer sentiment has come down to around recessionary lows as well. On the uh, on the supply side, you know, the, the number of people actually selling a home is really mild. There's there's fewer homes on the market now than there were a year ago, and uh, uh, um, compared to the five year average. Not all parts of the housing market have been affected equally. Tim Lawless says high-end suburbs and homes have seen the biggest falls, while prices have stayed high in more affordable markets. The more affordable end of the markets arguably haven't been impacted as much by rising interest rates, and potentially we are seeing some transmission of demand 
from those higher uh, price points towards the middle and lower end of the market simply because borrowing capacity has been reduced. The record fall in national home values comes off the back of a record upswing in values during the pandemic. House values rose nearly 29% from 2020 to the peak in May last year. University of Sydney Research Fellow Cameron Murray studies housing markets and he says this downturn is a record breaker on paper but it will have milder economic consequences. The price growth was very rapid in the last couple of years compared to earlier cycles. So there are actually very few households who paid those record high prices, whereas had those high prices been sustained for three or four years, uh, an enormous number of buyers would be would be underwater. Another factor is that we have uh, record low unemployment and income growth pretty broadly across the board. So I think that's another reason why I think the fallout from these price declines won't be as broad as some expect. CoreLogic says the country's housing downturn isn't over, with values expected to decline even further until interest rates stabilise. John Daly reporting. The return to school may still seem like a distant proposition for hundreds of thousands of children across the country, but some parents are already worrying about how they'll actually get their kids to attend this year. It's estimated that nearly 100,000 Australian children are not in education, with many more not attending regularly. A Senate inquiry is currently investigating school refusal, a phenomenon that some experts say could be getting worse following years of schooling disrupted by the COVID pandemic. Madeline Jenner reports. When Deborah Boyd's daughter started school, she enjoyed it. Now she's nine years old and it's a constant struggle to get her through the school gates. Her last attendance was back in August. She's just so distressed at the thought of going to school. She's running away at school, so she's frequently absconding, and I'm talking about a dozen times a day um, or more, and that's even just with partial attendance. There would be some people who say she's a nine-year-old, she needs to go to school, you've just got to get her there. What's your response to to that kind of attitude? (laughs) Oh, if only it was that easy. I mean, we've had two or three teachers trying to chase my child to get her into a classroom. So when a child is actually at that level of distress, you're dealing with completely different issues and behaviours there. It's not like I've got another kid who would, you know, prefer not to be at school. I, I get him to school. He, he doesn't have a choice. It's estimated that there are more than 100,000 Australian children not regularly attending school. Learning difficulties like autism and ADHD are common in this cohort of kids. And while teachers and parents really try, there aren't a lot of solutions for kids who struggle in the school environment. Professor Jim Waterston is the Dean of the School of Graduate Education at Melbourne University. He says it's not as simple as truancy where kids might just skip school for the afternoon. Sometimes when you talk about school refusal, we kind of think this, these, are, these are the older students, you know, year 10, year 11. But it's, when you dig deeply into it, it's, it's kind of tragic, really, that this happens at a very early age for a lot of young people. And this school refusal builds over time. So it starts off, you know, in some cases from students who are, who are five or six years of age. And, and, if, and if it's not sort of attended to, then, then of course, it just builds and builds over, over the next 10 years or more. Right now, a Senate inquiry is looking at the issue of school refusal and trying to work out if there are better ways to help kids back into the classroom. Researchers, teachers and parents all have different ideas. 
ranging from finding ways to make the school system less rigid and solutions that don't simply punish kids for their lack of attendance. Tiffany Westfall is the coordinator of a Facebook group called School Can't Australia, which supports families dealing with school refusal. She's been surveying parents in the group as she writes her submission to the Senate inquiry and says lots of families just want recognition that school refusal is a real issue. I think a lot of our parents have felt very isolated in their suffering and very misunderstood in the community. And so a lot of parents come to our group feeling often a lot of self-doubt because the messages that they've received have been, you need to use rewards and consequences to gain compliance from your child. So a lot of behaviourist messages have been sent their way and they've been made to feel like they're not good enough parents or not doing a good enough job parenting their children. And when they've been recipients of that kind of advice, that advice has often led to a damaged relationship with their child. The Senate inquiry will also look at whether kids are refusing to go to school in greater numbers following a couple of years of remote learning thanks to the pandemic. Many stress that school refusal isn't a new problem. And for some kids, the ability to learn from home actually took the pressure off. But there are lots of anecdotal reports suggesting school refusal is on the rise. Jackie Hallen is the Director of Service at Reach Out Australia, which provides online support and coaching for young people and parents dealing with school refusal. We've certainly seen a considerable increase in demand for support from parents and carers since May 2020. And I've got some numbers on that that I could share. So our key school refusal resource, it went from 14,000 views to 40,000 views in the last year. So more than doubling people accessing that resource. Deborah Boyd says she isn't sure how to help her daughter return to school. And despite the best intentions of teachers and schools, they're now just a bit stuck. She says the stress the issue has placed on her family has been huge, but worries it's an even bigger issue for families who can't work flexible hours or pay for extra support. I mean, I just don't know how other people do it. We we at least both have, you know, fairly decent jobs. At least when I work, I can pay for help. But if you're not in that position, I, I really don't know how families manage. The Senate inquiry is due to report its findings in March. Madeline Jenner reporting. An odour like rotting flesh, stinky cheese, dead fish. Doesn't exactly sound or smell like a great draw card, but curious plant lovers in Adelaide are flocking to check out the massive tropical plant nicknamed the corpse flower, which blooms just once every 10 years. Angus Randall held his nose to sniff out the story. Outside the distinctive glass and steel conservatory in the Adelaide Botanic Gardens, flower fans are delivering their verdict on the rare Sumatran corpse flower that's blooming inside. I'd say it smelt like the bin by the end of the week if it's been really hot. Dead sheep. Dead sheep? Dead sheep, yep. Exactly like a dead sheep. Really yucky. Bit like rotting fish, uh, some compost maybe. Uh, yeah, don't really know what a corpse smells like, so can't, can't comment on that. But it smells like a dead human. That's what the plant smells like. It's quite a wait to get in and have a sniff, but visitors say it's worth it for a flower that blooms so rarely. It's so big. The, the flower is sculptural and beautiful in itself. Yeah. The smell is secondary, I think. Mm, yeah. I think we're just curious what something dead smells like, so, you know... <laughs> <laughs> It's probably going to be so disgusting, but 
you know, I don't know, <laughs> be interesting. Is it something you'd see again? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And hopefully we'll get more of a chance because they've got about 100 small ones at the moment, so it might become more often. It's the first time in four years the gardens have been able to show a corpse flower to the public. Hundreds of people sticking their noses into a plant was not deemed COVID-safe in previous years. Matt Coulter is the horticultural curator at the Adelaide Botanic Gardens. It's quite an amazing flower, so it's classified as the largest flower of any plant in the world. So ours is standing about 1.3 metres, but this is a small one, but they can get up anywhere between 3 to 4 metres in the wild. Quite an amazing plant. The reason it's called as corpse flower is it actually smells to actually bring insects to it. It only has one night, so we've been growing this plant for 10 years... And it actually has one night that actually can get pollinated, so it puts this really strong stench out into the rainforest to actually bring the insects to help it actually get pollinated. The common name for the corpse flower is Titan Arum, coined by David Attenborough in Sumatra in 1974. It takes around 10 years for the first bloom, and after that it's able to bloom every three to five years. Most of the action between blooms is happening below the surface in the part of the plant called the tuber. For the flower to open... It's a really quite a um, strenuous um, exercise for the plant, so it needs lots of energy. So every year the tube is getting bigger, and then by around about 10 years of age, the tube is actually big enough, so instead of sending a leaf up, it will send a flower up. Since the Corpse Flower Project began in Adelaide 16 years ago, the plant has become even rarer due to deforestation. Suitable land in its native Sumatra has been occupied for timber logging and oil palm plantations. There's also a local myth that it eats people like an enormous Venus flytrap. So many farmers are likely to kill one if they see it. Matt Coulter says Adelaide is playing a vital role in the survival of the species. It's um, endemic to Sumatra, so the only place in the world that it occurs. So in 2018 it was actually classified as endangered. Before 2018 it was only classified as vulnerable. So in that time frame, because it hasn't been conserved, it's actually gone up a notch to, to be endangered. So one of the reasons that we're growing this plant is actually to help save the species if it does become extinct, that we actually could introduce it back into the wild if necessary. And when might we see one again? We have quite a big collection now. So since 2015, most years we've actually had one coming into flower. From our collection, we have six 16-year-old plants. But other than that, we have 110-year-old plants now. So most years we should be able to, to actually bring one into flower. The smell is already starting to fade. By tomorrow, it will have largely disappeared, ready for another bloom in a few years' time. Angus Randall surviving to tell that tale. Thanks, Angus. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.